Welcome to the Get a Grip podcast. I'm your host, Corey Grip. Uh, seeing as how this is a trying time for this whole country, I figure now it would be a great time to start a podcast. I've always wanted to get into this. I always have big, sometimes controversial takes. Um, on today's episode, but one more thing. I just want to get my opinions out there. And if you're listening to this, just know that this is just my opinion on everything with some, you know, um, background information to follow up my takes. So let's get going. Today, I'm going to cover multiple topics, uh, the coronavirus and its impact on college football and the NFL, the NFL draft, uh, news on Tua Tonga-Vailoa and Justin Herbert, quarterback prospects for the upcoming draft, the upcoming Bulls documentary, and will the NBA season continue? My first, first thing I want to dive into is the coronavirus impact on the NFL and college football. Listen, my whole thing on this is that I, I feel like coaches need to stop speculating on next season. I understand it's their job. You want to give the communities that you serve hope that there will be a season. But coaches Nick Saban, P.J. Fleck, and Coach Ed Orgeron at Minnesota, Alabama, and LSU – They've done a great job advising residents in their states to abide by social distancing rules and to be safe inside. But I have a problem with coaches Dabo Sweeney and Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State and Clemson. Listen, I love Dabo Sweeney. He's great. He's one of the best five coaches in college football. But taking a vacation, taking a private plane down to Florida earlier in the month of April, that's not a good look. And Coach Mike Gunny wanted to bring back staff members back to campus around May 1st. Also not a good look. Um, though he did make an apology uh, about it yesterday, it's just not good enough. And these coaches have such a big platform. And in the college, commu college communities that they serve, these are college towns. They have such a platform and they're so idolized by fans and by their, by their team. You can't make statements like this. This situation is bigger than anybody. It's it's bigger than the sports world and I know as a society, as an American society we need sports. Not having sports it, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit well with me and I know it doesn't sit well with a lot of these coaches, but they have to make adjustments on the fly. I also have a problem with with coaches saying we 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 want fans. I get that. Fans make any sport bigger better the adrenaline that comes with that um the the excitement um you know watching on tv doesn't do live atmosphere justice it just doesn't there, there's nothing like being at a uh college football game in the south the passion the energy it's all there from the tailgating scene pregame to the game itself to afterwards it's just there's nothing like it um but listen you know the coaches they might have to play without fans that's a very real possibility, and I think coaches are doing fans and their team a disservice. If it's not safe, you know, honestly, they'll be lucky if the season goes on. I think it will be played, but coaches need to stop speculating months in advance. They need to take it a week or two at a time and, and stop speculating until they know more. The coaches, they know as much as everyday citizens. We need to rely on experts. And we need to listen to all the advice until the experts think it's safe. 
And so I don't want, you know, coaches to dive into speculation about, oh, this season's going to happen and we're going to have fans. We, we don't know that. I assume the season's going to happen, but we don't know for sure until we get to, you know, mid-June to early July until we'll really know what's going to happen. But I think coaches need to get used to the fact that they might have to play without fans. It, it will do the college football scene an injustice because there's nothing like a home game anywhere around the country. But it's a very real it's it's very real. This is a very serious situation and this is bigger than any coach, any player, any university. This is a a virus that has affected millions of people and has killed m- over a million people. There's so much this is way bigger than the sports world and the sports scene and I think coaches need to be a little bit more patient with making statements on this issue. And I think they just need to, you know, go about their jobs, do their Zoom calls with their coaching staff, their players, their leadership groups, you know, potentially make recruiting phone calls, act as if the season is going to continue and continue with your job on a day-to-day basis. But I don't like coaches going out there and making statements, leave statements to the university presidents, the chancellors of colleges, universities, and to the experts within the government. And with and your state officials, let them make the statements. Let them figure out what's best for their communities and for the citizens that they serve. Jumping into the next topic, uh, and quickly, same thing with the NFL. Um, you know, I understand that you know Commissioner Goodell wants to be optimistic on this upcoming season, but again, he might know more information than everyday citizens. But again. Leave it to the experts before, you know, you make statements on a week to week basis that just can't happen. But having said that, I'm going to stick with the NFL. The NFL draft, it needs to happen. And I'm glad it is happening. Uh, it's a week from this Thursday. I have a problem with uh, with people that don't want the NFL draft to, to go on. I mean, I'm glad the NFL is doing the right thing. They're doing a virtual draft. This is something that needs to happen. For a sense of normalcy, this needs to happen. Um, but I also have a problem with teams making excuses. What are you making excuses for? Okay, GMs and, and presidents of these NFL teams, you have no excuses. This is your job. Your job is to, to analyze college prospects on a, year, on a yearly basis. What, what, do you, what do you mean? What, what, I don't understand why these G anonymous GMs and or presidents, members of the front office keep making excuses. This is what has to happen. I understand that not having pro days and face-to-face interviews, it's not an ideal situation for anyone, but the good teams will make it work. The good teams will make it work. You have years of film, two to three years of film on a lot of these, on most of these prospects. You have, you have the combine, you have, man, like, like scouts have been scouting, you know, these prospects for years. I mean, there, there are no excuses. There are no excuses for GMs and presidents to not do their best job and to put their best foot forward on this upcoming draft. They have so many resources at their disposal to, to their disposal. Why, why, why are you making excuses? I, I just, I don't understand that part of it. Uh, teams need to adjust and they need to make it happen. That's it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. If you trust your scouts, 
listen, sometimes like listen, pro days are overrated. Pro days are overrated. Some of the best quarterback prospects, some of the worst quarterbacks in recent NFL history had the best pro days. Johnny Manziel, Jamarcus Russell, Geno Smith. They all had great combines. And look what happened to them. Two of them didn't last more than four years in the league. And Geno Smith, outside his first two years of his career with the Jets, he's been a career backup. Pro days mean nothing. The the combine, also, I don't really look that much into. Look Look at Orlando Brown. He's a starting lineman for the Baltimore Ravens. Had one of the worst combines for an offensive lineman. People thought he wouldn't make it. He slid to the third, the third round. And look what he's doing now. He's starting for one of the best rush, the best rushing attack in the NFL based on last season. So I'm, I'm just going to say this. These GMs and front offices have enough information to make the best decision possible for this upcoming draft. It's their job to analyze these prospects. And they have plenty of film. If, a lot of times it comes down to this. You either have talent or you don't. And you can tell by watching a few minutes of film and highlight reels whether a guy has it or not. That's all it comes down to. The combine and the pro days, those are nice. And I, for, for me, those help the prospects at smaller schools more than anybody. For prospects at smaller schools, the combine and pro days are important. For, for the guys at the big schools, the SEC, ACC, the Big 12, Big 10, Pac-12, I don't really think that means a lot because those guys are on national TV every single week. I'm just going to leave it at that. GMs and presidents of teams, members of the front office, make it happen. They have plenty of resources. There are no excuses. There are no excuses. I'm going to transition to a couple quarterback prospects in this upcoming draft. I don't understand why there's so much criticism for Tua Tagovailoa. Do people realize how many quarterbacks at the NFL level get hurt every year? Ben Roethlisberger has missed extensive amount of time throughout his career, including last season when he had to have Tommy John surgery on his elbow. Aaron Rodgers has had some very serious injuries the past few seasons. Patrick Mahomes had some injuries in college, and he had a sprained knee last season, missed a few games. Every, everyone gets hurt. Drew Brees has gotten hurt. Tom Brady's gotten hurt. And they're two of the most durable quarterbacks in NFL history. You know, Drew Brees missed five to six weeks last year. And Tom Brady tore his ACL in 2008 in the season opener. Injuries are part of the game. You can get hurt doing anything in life. And I understand the risk is high in football. But you can get hurt at any position on the field. And so to me... What people are not looking at is what Tua's done at the collegiate level, his production. I get it. The injuries are very concerning. But I think the one thing that people need to understand is that whoever drafts Tua, because he will be drafted in the first round, and he should be drafted in the top 10. There's no reason why he should slide out outside the top 10. Whoever drafts him has to be completely honest with him, sit him down and say, son, you need to play more like Drew Brees instead of Russell Wilson. And he can be like Drew Brees. 2018, 69% completion rate. 2019, 71% completion rate, 11 touchdown to one interception ratio. 
And his only collegiate losses in one and a half seasons. Clemson in the national championship game. And last year against LSU, maybe one of the greatest college teams ever formed. And he scored over 40 points against LSU. Over 400 passing yards. That's impressive. Now the thing with Tua for me, he he thinks he's more athletic than he is. And I think that's part of the reason why he had that hip injury. The hip injury occurred outside of the pocket. He's not the most mobile guy. He is not as mobile or as athletic as Russell Wilson. Does he have similar characteristics and skills as Russell Wilson? Absolutely. But I think Tua needs to be more like Drew Brees and use his high completion percentage to his advantage. This is a guy that can see the whole field and make very accurate throws on all platforms, from all body angles. This guy can sling it. He can sling it. And I understand he had a lot of talent at Alabama. Henry Ruggs and Jerry Judy are both going to be first-round picks in this upcoming draft. And Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell could very both be first-round picks in next year's NFL draft. So he has potentially four first-round picks on his receiving core. But he made them better because he made great throws. And he played in the SEC, arguably the best conference in college football. On a week-to-week basis, he's going up against extremely high talent. There's a reason why the SEC has produced the most draft picks over the last 10 years. There is a reason for that. That is a conference filled with talent. And he was dynamic and only lost one conference game in two years. Again, he is not as athletic as he thinks he is. But any team that has him is going to tell him, listen, you cannot be running outside the pocket and getting hurt. And by the way, his ankle sprain that he that he had against Georgia in the 2018 SEC championship game, that happened in the pocket. It was a freak injury, and an injury and freak injuries happen to any can happen to any player. This notion that he's gonna slide is ridiculous. Had he not been hurt the past couple years, he could be the number one pick. Joe Burrow had a great season, and he's gonna go to Cincinnati. I would be shocked. And I think everyone would be shocked if he doesn't go number one. But to say that Justin Herbert or Jordan Love can go higher than Tua is absolutely blasphemous. And it's completely ridiculous. And let's also add one more thing in. He probably played for the most demanding college football coach in Nick Saban. And he was excellent. He took that offense to a whole nother level. A whole nother level. When they had Jalen Hurts, that Alabama offense, they blew out the bad teams. But when they played the good teams in the playoff that year, Clemson and Washington, Jalen Hurts was not solid. He also played very poorly against Auburn on the road. Tua, man, they, he really took off. That offense was on another level, his, two, his one and a half years there. And they're going to miss him next season, despite having Mac Jones returning. Um, to likely be the starting quarterback next season. Now, I mentioned Justin Herbert. I'm going to switch to him. I think he might be the most overrated prospect in this class, and I have and I have some numbers and some reasoning behind that. He reminds me a lot of Josh Rosen. Now, leading into the 2018 draft, all I could hear about was how great Josh Rosen was. What did he win in college? He didn't have a double-digit winning season at his time at at his time in Westwood. Not to mention injuries. Now, Justin Herbert has not been hurt while he's been at Oregon. So I will give him that. 
I will say that he has not been hurt, but Oregon won last year. They won, they won 12 and two. They won last year in spite of Justin Herbert, not because of him. They had a, they had one of the best defenses in the country last year, statistically, and a very strong running game. Let's just look at some numbers. And this is why I think if, if the Dolphins take Justin Herbert over to Gatunga Vailoa, and there are rumors that the Dolphins might not even take a quarterback at five. That is very likely at this point. That could happen. I still think Tua is going to go to the Dolphins because I think it makes the most sense. Let's just say the let's just say hypothetically the the Dolphins do not take a quarterback and the Chargers take Herbert over Tua. Both teams will be making a ginormous mistake. But let's get back into what I was saying about some of these numbers. Against teams with losing records last year. That includes Oregon State, Arizona, Nevada, an FCS team in Montana. Stanford, Justin Herbert had 20 touchdowns to one interception, and he went 7-0. He also played against Colorado, another really bad team last year. Now let's look at, and oh, also Washington State. There we go, that, that's all seven. <laughs> against teams with winning records, 12 touchdowns to five interceptions, 5-2, five and two, and a far weaker conference than the SEC, Big Ten, and Big 12. I watched a lot of Oregon games last year. I watched the Rose Bowl against Wisconsin. I watched him play on the road at Arizona State in a night game. I watched the season opener against Auburn. I watched him play in bits and pieces of the Stanford game, the Cal game, against Utah in the Pac-12 championship game. I'm just going to say I wasn't impressed. He looked very average against Auburn in the second half. Oregon was in full control of that game, up 21-6 early in the second half. And and once Auburn started to move the football more consistently and get into the end zone, they couldn't move the football. Oregon had a tough time running the football, but everyone says Justin Herbert is this great elite prospect. I didn't see it against Auburn in the second half, and that was week one. If they met at the end of the season, I don't think Oregon would have scored 20 points against Auburn. Let's jump to the Arizona State game. Two bad interceptions. Took some really bad sacks late in the sec- late in the game. And most of his passing yards came at the end of the game when Arizona State had the game in hand. He also played very poorly against Cal. They won 17-7. And they won 17-7 against Oregon State. Oregon State was one of the worst teams in the conference last year. And Cal, they have a strong defense, but they don't have a great offense. And let's get to the Rose Bowl game. Yes, Justin Herbert had three rushing touchdowns. However, however, he threw for less than 150 yards, had an interception, and if it wasn't for the defense forcing four turnovers and giving the offense short field, let's also not forget about the scoop and score and a muff pump by Wisconsin. Oregon couldn't move the ball without short field. They couldn't. They couldn't move the ball. And yes, Wisconsin was a very good team last year. But they might not have been one of the best three teams in that conference. Well, they might have been the third best team behind Ohio State and Penn State. I don't another thing I don't understand is why is Herbert not being criticized like Jake Fromm? 
Yes, statistically, Herbert might have more passing yards, more touchdowns, but they but both teams played a very similar style of football last year. They won games with a similar formula. Strong running game, play good defense, do not make a lot of mistakes. And Herbert did that against far inferior opponents. And he is not getting criticized because all the scouts and all these analysts are falling in love with his arm and his potential mobility in the pocket and this and that. But if you really watch the film, if you really watch the film, he is playing very average teams on a week-to-week basis. And he is not lighting up these teams. I will give Herbert a little credit. He did play really well against Washington on the road. And Washington's been one of the best teams in the Pac-12 the last four or five years. And he played extremely well against USC on the road. And he's and he's flashed. He's made some nice throws. He does have a big arm. But I don't but so did Josh Rosen. And look at what's happening to Josh Rosen. Former top 10 pick, got traded by Arizona after one year. They drafted Kyler Murray. That looks like it's going well for Arizona. And now he can't even beat out Ryan Fitzmagic to be the starting quarterback for the Dolphins. I'll give Rosen a little slack. He went to two situations he wasn't built to succeed. But neither did Sam Darnold. Neither did Josh Allen. Neither did Kyler Murray. Neither did Baker Mayfield. None of those guys went to great situations. None of those guys had great offensive lines their rookie year. But they all flashed and showed why they were picked where they were picked at points in their rookie year. Josh Rosen, I can't say the same thing. And I think whoever takes Justin Herbert is going to make an enormous mistake. And one more thing. People like people, I've been hearing people make excuses for Justin Herbert that he had no help. What are you talking about? Oregon has had a top 20 recruiting class in 2018 and a top 10 recruiting class in 2019, which was the number six class in the nation. And they've been for the last decade one of the most consistent team in the Pac 12 as far as success goes. And you're telling me he has no help? That is absolutely ridiculous. Oregon had one of the best offensive lines in the country last year and very good and, and, and decent enough. I wouldn't say decent enough, good skill position players, two good running backs and a, and a solid receiving core. Yes. Oregon doesn't have the skill position players that Alabama has or Georgia or LSU or Ohio state, but they're still very talented. So don't tell me he had no help. The numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. And if people and if scouts and analysts really watch the film, they really dig into it, they would agree with me. This guy, I wouldn't pick Justin Herbert in the first round. Could he have some success? Potentially. But there is this thing called the it factor. And I don't really know how to describe it. And a lot of people don't know how to describe it. But he doesn't have that. I don't see it in him. And I watched him play a lot of games last year. But I just, I don't see it. I don't see that killer instinct. I don't see that the leadership qualities. I'm not saying he's not smart and I'm not saying he doesn't have a good arm because both of those are true. But just because you have a big arm doesn't mean you're going to be successful at the NFL level. Shifting to my next topic. This one will be a little bit shorter. It's called one last dance is a 10 part bulls documentary starting on ESPN this Sunday. I can't personally, I can't wait for this documentary. Because I can't wait to learn more about the Chicago Bulls dynasty. 
I've obviously, I've read a lot about that dynasty. I, I know the history and the success the team had, but all the stuff off the court, all the stuff in the locker room at practices, I don't understand it. This, this team was, oh, oh, they were rock stars. And I want to see why they were rock stars. I want to see and know the, the inside stories and the details of what made this team so great and also pot- potentially controversial. Due to some of the things I've read with, you know, Michael Jordan fighting teammates at practice, you know, the whole Dennis Rodman story, you know, Jordan gambling, you know, and uh, smoking cigars before playoff games. I want to know what made that team so great. And honestly, I really hope it puts the GOAT debate to rest. You know, I, I never got to see Michael Jordan play live, but his highlights are on another level when you go on YouTube and you just look at. His, some of his best career moments. I know this This sounds like a cliche, but he's 6-0 in the finals for a reason. This guy had was great. He, had, he was a killer. He had no friends on the court. His killer instinct and his will to win are second to none. Some of the greatest attributes of any athlete in any sport in history. Listen, I'm not saying LeBron James isn't a great player. He's one of the best three players to ever play this game, and that's not debatable. I don't care who you are. You can't tell me LeBron James is not a top three player in NBA history. And he's arguably still the best player in the league. Now, that's debatable. I personally don't think LeBron's the best player in the league right now, but he's still in the top three, and he's still putting up numbers that people, you know, athletes his age generally don't put up. LeBron's incredible. But that doesn't change the fact that, he won't, that he's lost as many times as Jordan has in the finals. LeBron's great. But great players overcome great adversity. And, and back then in the NBA, it was a different league. It was more physical. And yeah, you know, I, I, I hear all these you know, debates. Oh, well, if you put NBA players from today's age back then, they'd be more athletic. No, I wouldn't agree with that. Because if those, if, if, if today's NBA players were born back in the late 70s, early 80s, and they made it to the league by the late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s, they wouldn't be any more athletic. They, they would not be as athletic as they are today. Today, with modern medicine and science and with different ways to, with your, uh, to train and eat and recover, players back then didn't know. Like A lot of players back then didn't have proper ways to recover they didn't have the the best diets. They didn't have the best training methods. I mean, let's just face facts. That's just the reality. So I, I today's NBA is a lot softer. I'm not going to – it's the truth. It's just the truth. It's not the same league. Defenses are not nearly as good as they were back in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, personally, a lot of basketball players nowadays, they don't love the game as much as they did back then. And I want to see, and I'm going to tie it back to this. LeBron James is a great player, but there is a reason every great player needs help. You know, that's why I have a problem with people that hold Michael Jordan's early playoff failures against him. He had no help. He had no help. I understand you have to come overcome great adversity. But even the great Michael Jordan couldn't win without Scottie Pippen. LeBron James couldn't win without Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. Yes, if you're a great player, you do have to overcome adversity. I understand that. 
But Michael Jordan, once he got the help and he bought in to what Phil Jackson was preaching, he became the GOAT. It's as simple as that. And as great as LeBron James is, LeBron James is, he's not Michael Jordan. They're not built the same. They're both extremely talented, but Michael just had something that no one else had. And that's what made him great. I'm going to transition back to the NBA. Sorry, not transition back. We're still talking about the NBA. I'm going to move back to the move into the NBA season. If the NBA does return, and I think it will, potentially in July, maybe late June. It's going to hurt some teams, but it's not going to hurt everyone. And I think it's going to hurt the Clippers, Jazz, and the Lakers the most. And I'll explain. The Lakers have one of the oldest rosters in the league. As great as LeBron James has been playing this year, the older you get, the harder it is to get back in shape. And a lot of NBA players do not have basketball courts or gyms in their houses. Now, LeBron James might, but the rest of his teammates probably won't, or most of them. The Lakers are one of the, like I said, they're one of the oldest teams in the league, and they started to click before the season got put on hiatus. It will take these guys a lot of time to get back into shape. Two, three weeks of games, and we don't even know how the NBA is going to come back. Are they going to jump straight into the playoffs? Are they going to give teams two weeks to get ready? We don't know what's going to happen. We don't even know if the season's going to come back. But it's going to hurt the Lakers no matter what because they started to gel the beginning of March. They started to play to their full potential. But because of their age, it's not they're not going to be able to get back to that point 